I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 4th, 2018. Coming up, we talk with Frank Zelosi, Regional Campaign Manager for the National Wildlife Federation and lead author of their report on Saving Summer. We'll alert you to some surprising effects of climate change on our cherished summer traditions. In science. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We'll be hearing more later in the show on the fallout from warming temperatures on our summers. One unexpected effect of climate change is a ramped up metabolism in insects. In addition to drought, flooding, and crop frying heat, farmers are going to be looking at hungrier grasshoppers, caterpillars, and other crop devouring pests. For insects, warmer temperatures mean higher metabolisms. This in turn means they can reproduce more, but also that they are hungrier and need to eat more. Insects already consume 5 to 20% of major grain crops, so any increase in this loss is worrying. A multidisciplinary team led by scientists from the University of Washington in Seattle, but including local experts in Boulder and Fort Collins, built a computer model that combined insect physiology with climate predictions. If the planet warms by an average of 2 degrees centigrade, as models predict will happen by 2100, if not sooner, then wheat crops will shrink by 46%, rice by 19%, and maize, or corn, by 31%. Temperate productive regions like the U.S. Corn Belt, wheat fields in France, and rice paddies in China would be especially hard hit, and these losses would increase with additional warming. The scientists did note that they left out complicating factors such as how insect natural predators will respond to warming, whether the insect's diet might change, and whether changes in farming techniques could keep the bugs at bay. This study was published last week in the journal Science. Two NASA spacecraft, one that will return a sample of an asteroid and the other on the edge of the solar system, have recently sighted their targets. The mission that will visit the asteroid is called OSIRIS-REx. The asteroid is called Bennu and is a rare B-type asteroid, meaning it's primitive and carbon rich, which is expected to have organic compounds and water-bearing minerals like clays. OSIRIS-REx will be NASA's first mission to visit a near-Earth asteroid, survey the surface, collect a sample and deliver it safely back to Earth. The spacecraft has travelled over one billion miles since its launch two years ago and it's scheduled to arrive at Bennu on December 3rd. The camera on OSIRIS-REx obtained its first image of asteroid Bennu from a distance of 1.4 million miles. Now that the spacecraft has located Bennu, the mission team will spend the next few months learning as much as possible about Bennu before the spacecraft arrives at the asteroid. In another part of the solar system, at a distance of almost 4 billion miles from the sun, is the spacecraft New Horizons. You may recall that New Horizons flew past Pluto back in 2015, but that wasn't the end of the mission. 
Pluto is the largest member of the solar system's third zone, a region called the Kuiper Belt, containing icy dwarf planets and smaller comet-like objects. After the Pluto flyby, New Horizons continued to its next Kuiper Belt target, 2014 MU69 nicknamed Ultima Thule, which means beyond the known world. The New Horizons onboard telescopic camera recently detected Ultima Thule at an amazing distance of 107 million miles from the spacecraft. Ultima Thule is much smaller than Pluto, perhaps only 20 miles in diameter, and it's so distant and small that before New Horizons, only the Hubble Space Telescope was able to detect it. And even then, it was stretching Hubble's capability to its limits. New Horizons will fly by Ultima Thule on New Year's Eve this year, which will be the most distant encounter ever of a solar system body. You may have heard by now that trees send each other signals in times of stress. Well, according to new research, interconnected components of an ecosystem, say tree canopies and the running streams below, or coral reefs and the ocean waters that flow around them, also communicate with each other. They do this via signals transmitted among earth, air, and water. And the way they do it appears to be much like the way a telecommunications network works. This idea has led to new ways of tracking how precipitation alters interactions among the atmosphere, vegetation, and soil. The results of the study show the ways in which watersheds respond to precipitation disturbances, especially rainfall and drought. Allison Goodwell, a scientist at the University of Colorado Denver, was lead author on the study, which included a team of researchers affiliated with the National Science Foundation's observatory sites in the western United States. One is in Idaho, and the other is in California's southern Sierras. The researchers gathered data for changes in flows of heat, soil moisture, and carbon, known as fluxes, before, during, and after prolonged rainfall and drought. The study provides insights into how connectivity influences fluxes. According to the researchers, stronger connectivity alters how rainfall affects moisture, heat, and carbon flux in ecosystems, as well as how a drought progresses from early to late stage. The study was published last week in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The National Wildlife Federation just released its report, Safeguarding Summer, From Climate Threats to Iconic Summer Experiences. This report chronicles the latest scientific findings on these trends and shows how we can engage on these issues to save our summers now and for future generations. I have the lead author of this report on the line this morning. Frank Zelosi, welcome to the KGNU Science Show. Hey, good morning, Dave. This is uh, Frank Zelosi with National Wildlife Federation. Good to talk to you, Frank. This is Beth. And oh, hey, Beth. This is quite the report that the National Wildlife Federation uh, put out. Congratulations on getting that out there. And before we get into the meat of the report, although I think most people are pretty familiar with the idea of climate change and the atmospheric warming that uh, contributes it to it, it's always good to get everybody on the same page. So maybe just give us a little background on the factors that cause atmospheric warming. 
Uh, sure, Beth. Um, uh, the science uh, uh, goes back uh, about 150 years to a uh, researcher um, in the 19th century called Keeling. Um, uh, since that time, uh, science and climatologists have seen that concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere um, create a warming effect um, by trapping um, trapping the heat uh, from sunshine. Um, and as uh, uh, humans have put more um, heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere, uh, roughly from uh, the, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in the late 19th century to today, um, the concentrations of atmospheric gases uh, in our atmosphere have, um, uh, have gone up. Um, and uh, I think it's uh, over the last, I, the last I checked, it was around 413 um, parts per million in the, um, uh, the, 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 the Hawaiian volcano uh, area where they, uh, they monitor these things. Um, and, and so uh, with uh, heat-trapping gases come, obviously, warmer temperatures around the globe. Um, with those warmer temperatures, there is an increase in the hydrologic cycle. And so um, we're seeing more um, frequent, very heavy rainstorms, uh, particularly in the um, eastern part of the United States. In other parts of the United States, we're seeing a more frequent drought. Um, and uh, from those uh, big changes come uh, sort of cascade climate impacts uh, uh, year-round. Um, and uh, some of those we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so some of those downstream effects are the ones that you chronicle in your report because they're associated with um, some of the activities we take for granted in summer. Like just for instance, I was really struck by this one. And of course, we just talked earlier on the show about how climate change can affect insect populations and their role in crop losses. And even though ticks aren't insects, which many people don't know, but they're closely related. So tell us about what happens with ticks when temperatures get warmer. Well, um, a few things. One, there's range expansion in that uh, the ticks um, uh, have, um, uh, you know, can expand uh, where they live and reproduce. And uh, as they as their range, range expands, so does the, um, uh, the vector-borne uh, illnesses and diseases that come with the ticks. Um, uh, and, and so we're seeing um, uh, horrible impacts on moose along the great north woods of the United States and uh, southern Canada. Uh, ticks are surviving longer um, uh, uh, in uh, decimating uh, moose. Um, uh, they're also t- spreading with them Lyme disease um, and uh, a peculiar allergy uh, that um, infects uh, humans with an, uh, uh, an allergic reaction to meat. Uh, I think I believe that's the Lone Star tick. Um, uh, in uh, you know as uh, as the ranges expand and um, uh, you know the, the heat continues to uh, help these ticks move. Um, into new areas, uh, you're seeing a, um, in fact, the uh, U.S. Center for Disease Control in Atlanta put out a, um, an alert earlier this spring uh, for a, um, a record season for Lyme disease as a result of um, 
uh, burgeoning tick populations. Yeah, this is a really an amazing thing to consider, that there's all these um, cascading effects that we wouldn't really anticipate, like that allergic reaction that you mentioned. For some reason, when the tick bites you, it regurgitates some of its body fluids into your bloodstream. And one of those proteins that it injects into you can cause you to make antibodies to a protein that's in red meat. And I remember reading about this in the Medical Mysteries column in the New York Times a couple years ago. But the thought that this could be spreading, especially in a country like ours where there's a lot of red meat consumption, is kind of staggering because this kind of allergic reaction is something you don't really ever recover from. You don't. You don't. And so um, uh, it is uh, one of uh, any number of um, unforeseen uh, impacts from um, from climate change. Yeah, exactly. And I thought it was great that your study, you know, which is not surprising given that you're part of the National Wildlife Foundation, considered a diversity of impacts on wildlife. Because I think people don't really consider these um, possibilities as a result of climate change. So could you talk a little bit more about some of those surprising results? Hmm. Um, uh, impacts on wildlife. Like with the um, moose and um, sure, sure. other ecosystems. Uh, well, uh, obviously one of the, uh, the uh, just the really tragic examples right now is um, uh, climate's role in aggravating and uh, uh, harmful algal blooms around the country. Um, we're seeing uh, problems in uh, the Great Lakes. Um, uh, there, there was actually harmful algal blooms in um, uh, some city parks in Denver. Um, and uh, what's, what, what's occurring in, in, in South Florida is nothing short of a cataclysm um, with um, uh, manatees and dolphins and other types of marine life um, uh, being suffocated by um, uh, harmful algal blooms. Um, it's not just the red tide, it's the, uh, it's, it's the blue-green algae that is uh, being let out of Lake o- Okeechobee. Um, I mentioned before about the uh, increasing hydrologic cycle. Uh, the more frequent heavy rains are pushing more nutrients off farmland. Um, and uh, as the nutrients get pushed off farmland, um, they're acting as steroids for the growth of harmful algal blooms. Um, harmful algal blooms um, uh, can produce toxins uh, harmful to humans uh, and animals. Um, and uh, it's, it's shocking to see lifeguards on beaches in southern Florida uh, being forced to wear gas masks. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, that's, protect, I hadn't seen protect. that. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's happening. And, and, and so... Um, uh, you know, these, these harmful algal blooms, you don't even need to touch the water uh, because uh, the toxins are uh, can uh, become aerosol, uh, aerosol uh, can, can, you know, put into the air, and um, you can inhale the water vapor, uh, and with the water vapor is uh, toxins that in some cases are even more harmful to you than, than arsenic. Right, um, yeah, yeah. Some of the red tide toxins are incredibly neurotoxic. No question. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, So that's a really frightening one. Well, for our listeners, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm speaking with Frank Zelosi, lead author on the National Wildlife Federation's report on the effects on climate change on summer activities. So one other surprising uh, 
consequence of a warming planet on our cherished summer activities is what might happen with baseball. Maybe you can mm. elaborate on that one. Sure. Well, that was a an interesting um, uh, an, an interesting part of our report. Um, none other than. Um, uh, 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 actually, it's the Arizona Diamondbacks that have um, uh, started, but then the Colorado Rockies followed uh, putting baseballs in humidors, like fine cigars, um, as um, uh, humidity um, at that elevation can help baseballs travel farther, spiking pitchers' earned run average and uh, uh, setting the stage possibly for more home runs. Um, uh, that, 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 was a, that was an interesting uh, development in Major League Baseball. Um, uh, the other piece is um, uh, an increasing uh, amount of ash borer beetles that are decimating ash trees, not just in the United States, but now in Canada, again, because of expanding ranges allowed by increasing temperatures. Right. Ash we're, trees are used. We're seeing a lot ash of that locally. Make, yeah, absolutely. Well, ash trees are made. Uh, uh, baseballs, uh, base, baseball bats, major league baseball bats are made by uh, from ash trees, and so um, uh, that 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 is a concern that uh, these trees are, are dying by the millions in North America, and um, uh, possibly putting uh, the major league baseball bat in jeopardy, and then. Um, you know, this was a record year for weather-related postponements and rainouts. Uh, again, more frequent heavy storms um, starting to play havoc with the baseball schedule in the spring. Right. Yeah. Well, the story about the humidor makes me think that uh, maybe there's going to be more tricks up their sleeves. It, it kind of reminds me of overinflating or underinflating footballs, and there might be some <laughs> right. there might be some regulation about how much you can humidify baseballs, although I would guess that that could be increasingly important in the the Denver team area because of the drought that the West is experiencing. Well, well one thing for about professional sports is they're gonna they're gonna factor in every um, you know, every potential factor right, to gain right. edge. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So um, uh, the baseball piece was uh, perhaps a more lighthearted uh, but nevertheless interesting look. Right. And, uh, uh, climate impacts on a, a summer tradition. Right, exactly. So were there any other effects that you found particularly worrisome, like that would affect a lot of people that we might not normally think of? Sure. Well, um, we have included um, a link to a Groundswell Institute report that focuses on um, uh, how increasing numbers of um, consecutive days that are 90 degrees and up um, heat waves, sure. increasing number of heat waves are spiking electricity bills for folks, uh, particularly of a low and fixed income. Um, they're paying in, in, in some areas 10 to 15 percent of their monthly income on electricity bills, um, and that's a great burden. Um, uh, climate uh, change impacts disproportionately uh, hurt folks who are least able to adapt to uh, new conditions. Right. So, um, uh, we, uh, in addition to advocating for wildlife, we also advocate for Americans um, uh, in, 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 in human communities and wanted to point out the um, injustice of uh, having 10 or 15 percent of your monthly income go towards uh, 
coping with extreme heat. Right, um, right. And not only is air conditioning disproportionately costly in terms of its electric use, unless there's a renewable source of energy that's providing that electricity, it's also then contributing to the problem of warming by adding more carbon to the atmosphere. It's a feedback loop, Beth, no question about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I know you also cover in your report some potential fixes. And I think it always merits, you know, like we talked about the causes of warming at the beginning of the show, it always merits reemphasizing some of those things that people can actually do to mitigate that. Because so often, you know, you're tempted to throw up your hands and say, oh, this is such a big problem. There's nothing I can do as an individual citizen. Mm -hmm. Well, um, uh, if if folks go to our report, nwf.org forward slash summer, there is a button that says take action. Um, and what we need is for folks to uh, exercise their, their, you know, their uh, rights as citizens to uh, reach out to members of Congress, members of the Senate, um, and, uh, you know, your governor and, and, and our president to say act on climate, lead on climate, understand um, uh, the economic and cultural and um, uh, moral impact of uh, policies that, um, uh, will begin to address um, uh, the, the climate crisis. Uh, one in particular is uh, the fuel economy standards. Uh, by going farther on a gallon of gas, um, uh, we reduce uh, carbon emissions from the transportation sector. Um, uh, the fuel economy standards also um, provide incentives uh, for electric vehicles, and we need to electrify our transportation fleets all over the country. Obviously, energy efficiency and renewable energy, such as solar and wind, uh, have to be part of the solutions. Yeah, that's so true. And do you happen to know um, about the electric vehicle tax credit? Is that part of that um, proposal to cut the fuel efficiency? Is that tax credit going to be cut also? Uh, The tax credit is a separate issue from uh, the fuel economy standards. Uh, The fuel economy standards were set by um, the previous Environmental Protection Agency um, under President Obama, they were um, uh, the single largest um, bite our country ever took out of our, our, our carbon emissions uh, collectively. Uh, the transportation sector exceeds even uh, the energy or the electricity producing uh, sector as far as emissions go. Um, uh, you know, we've retired a, a number of coal-fired power plants net. Those retirements continue to build, but, um, uh, you know, when you're talking about what folks can personally do, um, uh, I'd encourage folks to take a hard look at the transportation sector because that's where the majority of car- car- you know, carbon emissions are coming from in the United States today. I, th- I think that's a great point, that people can really contribute by cutting their individual car trips by as little as, say, 10 to 20 percent and walking or using bicycles or alternative transportation or just simply combining trips, things that are pretty simple to do and very low tech, we can all have a pretty big impact on the carbon budget. It certainly adds up that uh, reducing vehicle miles traveled is, is, is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really struck by how all of this stuff ties together. I mean, I started off with 
um, a headline about how warming will increase insect populations, and then you know more and more information from you about how um, these effects interplay in multiple dimensions. And the bottom line to me is not only is this happening faster than was anticipated even, say, 10 years ago, but we're just going to be increasingly surprised by what some of these consequences are. Uh, unfortunately, I believe your, your, your assessment is true. Um, Sadly. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, but uh, uh, it's important for folks to, uh, uh, you know, to reach out and to try to educate themselves, uh, their family and friends, and you know, make uh, uh, you know make make decisions in their line of work. Uh, but also, uh, you know, this uh, recognize this as a human created problem, and humans have the ability to solve it. Uh, that, but it's going to so take true. public policy, it's that's so take public true. policy, and, and individual decisions. Yeah, it's going to take work on both parts. And so here on our show, we're trying to get the information out and we will put a link on our show website to your report. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Frank. Okay. Well, you have a great day. Great week. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Frank Zelosi, lead author on the National Wildlife Federation's report on the effects of climate change on summer activities. We got an in-depth look at some of the unexpected fallout we can expect in future summers if temperatures continue to climb. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, and I also produced this week's show, which was expertly engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Susan Moran and Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler and additional music from Lana Del Rey. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. Uh, and to go along, a, a, the 